I can be understood in Dutch, German, French, Spanish, English, and then Farsi off and on. It kind of depends on how exposed I've been to Farsi. That's Cyrus Rupers, age 29, who grew up in America. I interviewed him and his younger brother, Philip. Here's Philip answering the same question about his language skills. Uh, French, Dutch, German, familiarity with Persian. I know enough Japanese to say, let's go to a bar and have a drink. Yeah. Cyrus and Philip Rupers are polyglots in a country where, it is said, languages go to die. There are outliers in another way, too. Although they were born and raised in America and graduated from high school in Northern Virginia, they went to college in a foreign country. We both went to the Rotterdam School of Management, so Rotterdam in the south of Holland. You know, the idea of going to school in Holland was pretty cool and just doing something completely different. For graduate school, they went to Spain and attended the IE Business School in Madrid, the Instituto de Empresa. Here's Philip. Uh, yeah, it was a one-year accelerated master's program, uh, kind of continuing what we learned in Rotterdam. So it was centered on business administration. This is too good of a story, right? The ideal American students who go abroad and learn from different cultures, immersing themselves in foreign languages. We'll hear how Cyrus and Philip got to be such outliers and of a campaign designed to create many more of them that fell short. This is America the Bilingual. America the Bilingual, a podcast dedicated to those learning their next language or thirsting to start. I'm Steve Levine. Many of us dream of living abroad, but few of us actually do. Yet here's the thing. I've interviewed hundreds of native English speakers who have become bilingual, and nearly all of them at some point lived abroad. Often, it was in a study abroad program. And these lucky people almost always describe that period as pivotal in their lives, not only in gaining language skills, but in opening their minds and gaining confidence and often in forming enduring friendships. My wife is one of them. She spent a semester abroad while in college. She went to Madrid, took classes in Spanish, and achieved a flowering fluency that lingers still. Decades later, she still travels with her college girlfriends who bonded during their time abroad. Because of the critical role of study abroad in fueling American bilingualism, I set about trying to find whether there might be some organization that studies and promotes the activity. It didn't take long to learn that there is. I'm Lisa Carbajo. I am the head of higher education initiatives here at IIE. And I've been in the field of international education for more than 20 years. The IIE stands for? The Institute of International Education. And uh, we, work, we work with government. We work with foundations. We administer uh, the Fulbright. We have about more than 240 programs that we administer. The IIE encourages American students to study abroad. About five years ago, they concluded that the number of American students venturing abroad was far too low. It stood just shy of 300,000 students annually. The organization launched a campaign called Generation Study Abroad to double that number by the end of the decade. After a heroic effort recruiting partners in the campaign, colleges, governments, businesses, the impact 
was smaller than hoped, with increases of only about 3% in the first years. It became clear that the goal to reach 600 students in just a few years was, in the words of another IIE staffer I interviewed, a moonshot. At present, the number of Americans going abroad stands at about 315,000. That's out of some 20 million college students. Put another way, only about 10% of Americans go abroad at any point during their college years. But the goal really was also, aside from, from doubling the number, was also the intention was to really start this call for action with universities, with government, to really talk about the critical need for getting these students to go abroad. Becoming a global citizen is really exposing our students to a culture other than themselves, to be exposed to different ideas, uh, different ways of, of doing either business or of living or of thinking. And honestly, I mean, it does give them that ability to understand that we're not living in this world alone. Right. Lisa told me there has never been more financial support for study abroad and that it's very safe for students. Yet many parents are reluctant to let their children go. I would say that the parents definitely are key to in- encouraging the students. And some parents, I know parents of sometimes a minority uh, or a diverse group uh, may not necessarily understand why, why their child should go abroad or they may be f- fearful of sending them to another country. But again, it's they, they should be supportive um, because at the end of the day, it really does make them competitive. American college students are often themselves reluctant to study abroad due to heavy course requirements, especially if they are trying to get into professional school after college. They worry they might fall behind if they spend time overseas. And for those who do venture abroad, there are two trends that don't bode well for language learning. Well, they, the trend is now we're seeing uh, short-term programs. So students can go anywhere from three weeks to eight weeks in the summer, but uh, we are starting to see more students going in short-term programs. I asked Lisa if three-week summer programs count in their numbers of Americans studying abroad. Yes, as long as it's academic. While sitting in the waiting room before my appointment with Lisa, I picked up a magazine full of ads for study abroad. There was a program for a school in Greece with bold type saying, Courses taught in English. And another ad for a school in Mexico with the prominent line, All courses taught in English. I asked Lisa whether this is a trend. Well, and that's the, the, the truth is that for, and it's unfortunate, but the truth is that for U.S. students to go abroad, uh, a lot of the students are wanting to take courses in English. Um, And that's just the fact. It's not that these schools are catering just to American monolinguals, but rather to international students who speak their native language plus English. English is the language that, the international language that's spoken. For universities to be a little bit more competitive and to attract students from around the world, we are starting to see that these universities are offering courses in English. What is growing steadily, according to IIE data, are the number of international students coming to the U.S. That number exceeded one million last year. This amounts to about 5% of our overall student body. 
The largest sending country is China, representing almost one-third of international students, followed by India with about 16% of the total. Saudi Arabia just edged out South Korea to take the third spot. In stark contrast to American students studying abroad, international students coming to the U.S. overwhelmingly stay for several years and earn degrees, undergraduate and graduate degrees, and at the same time become proficient in English if they weren't already. One more thing, these international students bring in lots of money, about $36 billion per year, most of it from their parents paying full tuition. How many Americans go overseas to get a degree? Turns out fewer than 50,000 do this annually, and most of these are graduate students. Compared with the 20 million Americans in college in this country, only about 20,000 go outside the U.S. to get undergraduate degrees. Cyrus and Philip Rupers represent fewer than one-tenth of one percent of American college students. True outliers. How did they get that way? Okay. So here we go. Cyrus and Philip are the sons of Jack Rupers and Nadere Shamlu. We've, we've been friends for um, more years than, than we want to say, right? Many years. Definitely many years. Several <laughs> decades. <laughs> Several decades. Well. Nadere was born in Iran and came to the U.S. in 1974. Jack was born in the Netherlands and came to America in 1980. They met while getting graduate degrees at Georgetown University. Both Jack and Nadere learned several languages at young ages. Jack describes himself as fluent or comfortably proficient in German, French, Spanish, English, and Dutch. I also muddle along in Farsi, Italian, and Portuguese, he told me. Nadere says she's conversant in Persian, English, and German, and can function in French, Spanish, and Dutch. As polyglots themselves, it was only natural that Jack and Nadere would raise their boys speaking several languages, but which? So they are Americans, and so obviously their English is their first language, unlike Nadere's and mine. Right. Now, they could have, um, if you had spoken English to them, they could have become Mono, monoglots, monoglot, monolingual Americans <laughs> like uh, <laughs> like me. Or I, I consider myself a recovering monolingual. Uh, but they could have become a, a typical American in that respect, um, despite your many languages. Mm-hmm. Um, but you didn't do that. So what did you do? What What were your goals? First of all, what were your goals, and then what did you do? Well, first of all, uh, we wanted them to be um, at least understand our native languages our you know uh, like Dutch and Persian we wanted them to be able to get by when people talked about and certainly soak in a little bit of the culture so that was uh, quite important and to speak with their grandparents Mm. Uh, my, my parents remained in Europe and her parents, speaking Farsi, were in the United States. So Jack spoke Dutch to them. Pretty much everything. I would tell them, uh, you know. Said in Dutch. Goedemorgen, jongens, wakker worden. Good morning, boys, wake up. Of, uh, or, you know, the early bird gets the worm. I would say that in Dutch, the, 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 the vroege vogel krijgt de worm. The zon is al op, sta op. The sun is already up, you get up. Things like that. And Nadere spoke Farsi to them. خب همیشه باشم صحبت میکردم که بیاین ببرین اینو ببر اونو بیار این کار بکن. Well, I just said that you know I was I would tell them you know take this and bring this and go upstairs you know come down. I'm just trying to understand. I'm trying to put myself in the in their tiny little boy heads. 
yeah. of hearing their mother yeah. speak Farsi, hearing their father speak Dutch, mm-hmm. and somehow they made sense of it. Totally. Yes. Their ideal trilingual world came to an end when the boys started school. Nadere knew that the boys would be judged only by their English skills, so she switched herself to English. Again, you know, I'm looking back at why did I switch to English to um, essentially let, let go of Farsi. Part of it is because so much attention is given to being articulate in English, even at, you know, when you're applying for pre-K. Yeah. There, there wasn't enough attention being given to the fact that this kid that is in front of them is exposed to three different languages. Yeah. This, the teacher right. was only, or whatever, the school was only check, checking him on how good he can express himself in English. But Jack didn't let go of Dutch. When the boys were quite young, they thought only their dad spoke his language. Initially, they thought that when I spoke Dutch to them and nobody else around them in Washington did, that that was a secret language between us and them, me and, and them. So we went to Holland for the first time, I think, at nine. I was nine and you were seven. And uh, we were taking the train from the airport to The Hague. Standing in the train, first, I got two questions. I said, one of the, one of the questions was, Everybody is speaking our language. I remember just being blown away. I was like kind of sad a little bit. I remember just being like, you know, crap, our, our secret language has been, you know, someone has kind of infiltrated our secret language and really. And the second question, unfortunately, was, Daddy, Papi, why are you so small? <laughs> <laughs> because the Dutch, are, so the Dutch are the tallest people on earth, I believe. Jack's parents retired and moved from Holland to southern France. Jack asked his parents to speak only Dutch to their grandsons when the family came to visit. Meanwhile, Nadere hadn't entirely given up on Farsi. I did take them to Saturday um, Persian classes, and they learned how to read and write. Here's the boys' take on that. The teacher. Yeah, she was just uh, awful. Not the most motivating, uh, and her form of positive reinforcement. Whenever we did something good, she would have a cookie, which kind of didn't make much sense. <laughs> yeah. She had this she big. She had this big tin of like sugar cookies. Uh-huh. And, she was fairly large, but she would just basically have she would basically have a sugar cookie for herself. Both Cyrus and Philip did work on their Farsi on their own and during trips to Iran. They also picked up German around their grandparents and French in school beginning in middle school and all the way through high school. They credit their high school French teacher particularly, a certain Mrs. Swope. So one of the things I remember from my French teacher, Miss Swope, for me, she was one of the best teachers I ever had. And, well, I didn't agree with her at the time, but definitely years past, like, I realized how much of a, you know, contribution she's made to my life. She was very stern, no English in the classroom, and, like, if you said anything English, then you kind of got demarked or, like, sent outside for a little bit. After business school, Philip has worked in big data and tech security. He uses his Dutch while working with the firm's Amsterdam team. Cyrus became a consultant for Accenture for several years. He used his languages with Francophone Africans, Dutch co-workers, and Latin Americans. Cyrus is now engaged, and he and his fiance have started a company called Arousing Appetites, which sells hard-to-find kitchen products that the couple sources while traveling and living around the world, navigating with the help of Cyrus's many languages. Cyrus and Philip are poster boys for what Liz Carabajo from the IIE advocates. 
it obviously gives you an added um, edge if you know uh, a different language, especially to, to be able to be competitive in this global world that we're living in. Yet if we look at the overall picture of American students acquiring additional languages, things don't look so rosy. 90% of college students never study abroad. Those who do stay for shorter periods and increasingly take their classes in English. For every American student flying to another land, three international students fly to America. And when they get here, they stay for years, they earn degrees, they learn English, and thereby gain the gift of bilingualism. American outliers like Cyrus and Philip Rupers, who turn the tables and become themselves international students in other countries, learning their languages, show us how things could be very different. America the Bilingual is part of the Lead with Languages campaign of ACTFOL, the American Council on the Teaching of Foreign Languages. A special salute to the IIE, which for almost 100 years has been fostering international education. They transform lives, boost economic development, and help secure world peace. Pretty heavy stuff. Check them out at IIE.org. This episode was written by me, Steve Levine, and our producer, Fernando Hernandez, who also does sound design and mixing. Associate producer is Becky Rankin. Editorial consultants are Mim Harrison and Maya Thomas. Graphic arts by Carlos Plaza, Design Studio. Music in this episode by Kevin McLeod, Francisco Benilla, Lloyd Rogers, and Lee Rosevere. All thanks to the Free Music Archive, directed by WFMU. Check out the episode notes on americathebilingual.com. You'll find eye-opening statistics on study abroad, as well as some photos of the Rupers family. Thanks for listening. For America the Bilingual, this is Steve Levine.